understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. How are you, Rob? Not bad, not bad, no complaints. Uh, we've reached a important milestone. Oh yeah, what's that? I have given my second blood donation whilst we've been recording this podcast, so that's how long we've been at it. <laughs> oh wow, you donate blood often? I think uh, three times a year, but I just wanted to bring it up to point out some positive aspects of it, which are basically you get a wee uh, mini health check, mm-hmm. and it also lowers your blood pressure. I did not know that. So those are some benefits. I did not know that. Is there anything that might raise turkey's blood pressure that you're aware of? Well, yes. Well, yes. There's, uh, that, that's, that's an artful, <laughs> artful segue there, Rory. Artful, artful. Uh, so we, this is part two of our discussion of the Turkish election. And I would like uh, in this, hopefully uh, in this episode, to salvage what's left of my Turkish audience after <laughs> publishing something called The Case for Erdogan. Uh, this is the case against uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And I think... Erdogan, Turkey's Lincoln, I think uh, it was referred to as at some points. I think that... <laughs> wow, yeah, man, jeez. You're not helping me here, Rory. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, this could be why he's not Turkey's Lincoln. Well, no, I, I, I mean, Turkey's Lincoln. Let's go with Turkey's FDR. Turkey is FDR. Let's, let's go with okay. that. That's a, that's a little <laughs> more. Because FDR is still a controversial... Uh, figure and always will be. Uh, I don't. I don't think Erdogan's going to make it to uh, Lincoln levels of uh, sainthood, uh, secular, secular-ish sainthood. Though I don't. I mean, I was just at Lincoln's tomb yesterday, and that 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 goes far beyond the secular. I would say. Uh, but yeah, Recep Tayyip Erdogan is a guy who I've been living with uh, for. Gosh, I, I'm my first. Summer internship in Turkey was in 2010, so 13 years I've been watching uh, Erdogan work his way through Turkish politics and sort of evolving visions of him. And I think in 2010, I was a pretty, I think, staunch Erdogan supporter would overdo it, um, but I was I was in, in, in environments that were already pretty anti-Erdogan. This is Western environments, uh, you know, generally... Most of the, unfortunately, most of the Turks that I, well, fortunately and unfortunately, uh, some of my best friends, but, you know, most of the Turks that I hung out with were pretty much uh, old school, secular elite types. Uh, so he was already, like, widely loathed in 2010. But in 2010, I couldn't really see it. Uh, in 2013, I really, really see it. Uh, the, for me, the main case for case against Erdogan, the un, the incontrovertible argument for his maliciousness is Syria. Uh, Syria has been at the root of Turkey's crisis for the past decade. Uh, Syria is the reason that things have gotten as crazy as they have in Turkey. Syria is also the reason that Erdogan has been able to consolidate power the way that he has. And it's been a tremendous tragedy uh, for Erdogan. I think that Erdogan could have retired, you know, if he in a world without Syria, he could have made it to 2015, 2016, retired uh, as a widely celebrated figure in Turkey and abroad, leaving behind a more democratic system that had 
reconciled a lot of these issues uh, with Islam. Uh, he could have done that. But instead, he, and this was a choice that he made, uh, decided to get involved in Syria. And it has had all of the chaotic reactions that uh, have ensued uh, from the reigniting of the Kurdish war, from the coup itself. I find it very hard to believe that the coup would have happened without this uh, military that had been so involved in Syria. It, it's interesting. We talked last time about how the military had largely been decapitated and debilitated, but this uh, activity in Syria had also created a new sense of possibilities and activity uh, for that military. A new generation? A new generation of folks that might have even had wider horizons uh, than the old secular elite that was mostly interested in controlling Turkey. Uh, so it, it's just been uh, an incredible disaster. And it's been a disaster in ways that Erdogan and his supporters uh, acknowledge and make a big deal about. Uh, and they're not wrong. They're not wrong that Turkey has been forced to deal with a refugee crisis on a scale while well beyond anything that Europe has had to deal with. Uh, you know, Europe famously lost its mind in 2015, 2016, over about a million refugees. Uh, Turkey has put up 4 million for most of a decade now. Uh, and has actually, during much of that period of time, uh, has been quite virtuous and even heroic in how welcoming they have been to those Syrian refugees. It is now a pretty nasty part of Turkish politics, uh, the way that the Syrian refugees are talked about and referred to. But a lot of those folks got Turkish passports, like a lot of, uh, you know, uh, the tremendously welcoming for a long period of time until the Turkish economy started falling apart, uh, sort of 2016, 17, 18, uh, or thereabouts. They're absolutely right that the United States has uh, betrayed Turkey, Turkey in, in an incredible way with this relationship with the Kurds. It's not just uh, that uh, the PKK is deeply affiliated with the uh, Rojava, the, the Syrian Kurds, uh, it's also that the war in Syria against the war in Syria spilled over into Turkey. Uh, it was just reviewing this this recently. Uh, I'm actually getting a slightly different perspective on the Turkish intervention in Syria when you consider this launched in 2016 uh, is expanded most recently in 2019. I'm seeing that in a different light now that I reviewed the history recently and looked at the the, the fact that in 2015, 2016, there was open war uh, between the Syrian Kurds and Turkey in Turkey before it was in uh, before it was in Syria. So that kind of stuff looks kind of justified. But all of this, all of this at its very root was launched by Erdogan's incredibly stupid, incredibly selfish, incredibly incredibly wrong decision to get involved in Syria in the first place. The Turkish Republic, with the exception of Cyprus, which is uh, a, a, a whole other can of worms, uh, in the 1970s, uh, Turkish and Greek, uh, to put this in as neutral terms as I possibly can, uh, Turkish and Greek inhabitants of uh, Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean, had a massive 
falling out. The Greeks were winning, uh, so the Turkish military intervened to protect Turks there uh, and intervened in ways that can be characterized as horrible or malicious or heroic or, or what have you. That's not what I want to get into uh, today. But with the exception of that intervention to protect Turks, uh, the Turkish Republic for a full century, despite having a very strong military emphasis, uh, was non-interventionist in a very real way. Like they just did not, were not interested in going out and trying to conquer places. I think the ruinous legacy of the Ottoman Empire, where for the past 80 years they'd be like, oh gosh, we have to go defend this chunk, and then another chunk would get invaded. Oh, we have to defend this chunk, and just, you know, it ended up in incredible catastrophe for the Ottoman Empire. So Turkey just didn't do a lot of this intervention in its neighbors. And then in 2011, I think largely because the United States asked him to, the Erdogan committed the Turkish government to overthrowing the government next door and acted in really malicious, really horrific ways that... So it's all Obama's fault? Well, it's... It, I would say the main actors who should be blamed for... The main actor who should be blamed for murdering half a million people in Syria, um, it goes back and forth for me, whether it's Erdogan or whether it's Obama. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think, I think, sure, Obama was pushed by, and I think that's actually a, a reasonable, it's an interesting contrast. I think Obama was, Obama takes the blame. Obama absolutely uh, deserves the blame for the death of half a million Syrians. Uh, but he was kind of pushed by his system in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, whether you want to talk about the Israel lobby, whether you want to talk about defense contractors, whether you want to talk about just Hillary Clinton and her thirst for blood. Don't quite a few American presidents talk peace, and then once they're in the White House, suddenly that changes? Absolutely. That's a, that's a very established dynamic because of just way, the way that the incentives work, the way that everybody in the U.S. government is bought and paid for by defense interests. Uh, the contrast here, though, is that Obama, you know, deserves this blame, but you can make excuses for him because of the way that the U.S. system works. Maybe he was forced into this to some degree. Uh, you can't really make that argument for Erdogan. Erdogan had a lot of, you know, went to, you know, battled his system in part because he he, he saw political advantage in it, but he, he fought hard to overinvest Turkey in creating this war. And Obama would not have been able to kill half a million Syrians if it were not for Turkey's participation. Uh, yes, Assad. Assad is a bad man. I feel like I need to say this. Assad is a very bad man. He's a terrible, terrible dictator. Uh, he is, but what he was doing in 2011 was no worse than what the Egyptian dictator Sisi did in 2013 that we've supported uh, eagerly for the past decade was no worse than what Saudi Arabia did in Bahrain. Um, we took a guy who was you know, a, a crappy, a standard Middle Eastern crappy dictator and turned him into an epic mass murder, and those were choices that Obama and Erdogan made, and Obama and Erdogan had infinitely more choice in this situation than Assad did. Uh, so yeah, he's a murder, murderous bastard. Has Erdogan gone beyond what America would have wanted? Well, that's a very important question, uh, and I think that most U.S. media and most U.S. government would say, yeah, he supported ISIS, he, did, he created the jihadi highway, you know, he basically opened up anybody from anywhere in the world who wanted to fly to Turkey, go down to the border with Syria, and go fight. Uh, Assad was allowed to. 
Uh, and there's this really, really strong emphasis in Washington, D.C., especially as Erdogan has fallen further and further out of favor with Washington, D.C. since 2013. This, oh, yeah, like a surprising number of people in Washington, D.C. would probably agree with me now, not in blaming Obama for the Syrian war, but blaming Turkey for the Syrian war. Of course, Washington, D.C. will always be, oh, it's Assad, it's Butcher Assad, it's Butcher Assad. But it's Erdogan's fault that it became such a jihadist nightmare because he let people come in and the foreign fighters and this side and the other thing. I think that is BS. I think that the United States has always been tremendously supportive of the nasty jihadist elements, uh, even after the Islamic State. Uh, we worked really hard and funded and tried to support nasty jihadist elements that weren't the Islamic State. Like, if you'll just, you know... Uh, change the badge on your uniform or whatever, if you'll just pretend to not be Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, we'll continue supporting you, you nasty jihadists, all the way up until, I mean, this is something that I hate giving Trump credit for things, but in 2017, he stopped. So he, so far, basically, we were supporting nasty jihadists in Syria throughout the first three years of our fight against the Islamic State, as long as they were not... Um, directly affiliated with al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. Uh, there are no jihadists left. And it's interesting that after our funding stopped in 2017, very quickly, all non-al-Qaeda jihadists uh, disappeared. <laughs> they just wasn't, uh, or rather they just joined up um, with uh, al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Like they're just, there was never much to the Syrian rebellion that wasn't nasty jihadists. And it was in the interests of nasty jihadists that we were supporting to pretend to not be working with the Islamic State uh, or Al-Qaeda, um, but they really kind of were, even if they were fighting against each other. Uh, this is a dynamic uh, that goes, you know, it is very similar in the Afghan war. You know, we supported many, many different elements that were all against the Soviets and that fought, often fought against each other, even when they were fighting the Soviets, but certainly thereafter. Uh, we supported a whole bunch of elements in the Syrian war that were mostly jihadist, that were fighting, fighting against the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, but they were mostly fighting against Assad. Uh, so I think it's, and we do this with Pakistan as well, um, where we're like, oh, you know, it was Pakistan that made the fight against the Soviets so nasty, where it's like, no, like, I mean, you just chose to support elements against somebody you didn't like. And when it's the Soviet Union, I think that's a lot more defensible. You know, the Soviet Union was a serious rival for the United States uh, in the 1980s. And uh, you had mutually assured destruction. You can go back and forth whether or not the Soviet, I think the Soviet Union probably would have fallen without the war in Afghanistan. But who can say that? You know, that was actually a worthwhile thing to do. Um, and we ended up getting 9-11 because of that, those actions that we had taken. And you know what? Maybe it was worth it. Who knows? It was not worth uh, creating the Islamic State to uh, overthrow Assad, but that is definitely something we did. Turkey was a very vital part of that, and Turkey has suffered. You know, the United States has not, and hopefully never will, suffer the sort of 9-11 scale consequences uh, that we suffered from uh, supporting jihadists in Afghanistan, uh, but Turkey has suffered those consequences. And again, that is Erdogan's choice. It was Erdogan's choice 
to turn on Assad. In the 2000s, under the zero problems with neighbors policy, which was a great policy that the AK Party, that Erdogan's government participated in, he was very friendly with Assad. He was going on vacations with the Assad family. He was, you know, he had established a level of positive relations with Syria that it had not had over the entire period of the Assad regime, the current Assad's father, uh, it, which was a great thing. There were talk, there was talk, I need to back this up more, I need to go back and research details, but my understanding was that because, in part because the EU had been denying Turkey's application for so long, they were actually creating a free trade area between Turkey and sort of the Levant more generally, Lebanon, Syria, like just incredible positive potential here. But because, in part because for domestic political reasons, Erdogan felt that he wanted to get the U.S. more on side, he teamed up with the Obama administration and created the Syrian civil war. And the consequences have been horrific. But I think that's the, the center of the case against Erdogan is... If Erdogan loses, can you see um, Turkey leaving the territories they control in Syria? That's a really really, really important question. And I would say no, um, oh. for starters. Uh, I think that the, I think there's certainly elements of the Turkish opposition that have campaigned really hard against that and really want uh, a, a negotiation with Assad, uh, that Erdogan has, you know, there's been rumors of, of Erdogan, Assad, contact, but that's really difficult to do. He's spent a decade talking about how he's a terrible murderer and has uh, actually invaded his country. Um, so much like Obama campaign on closing down Guantanamo, on abandoning a lot of aspects of uh, George W. Bush's war on terror, but in actual practice, what he did was he sort of formalized and humanized you know but you can't see the air quotes i'm doing there he sort of he sort of uh, made it look a little more palatable he's like oh no no we've got we've got teams of lawyers that are looking into the people we murder extrajudicially you know it's it, it's it's much nicer and i think that the chances are that no matter what the commitments they're making on the campaign trail that the turkish opposition in power is going to have a lot of trouble uh, just withdrawing from Syria. I'd love to see that. that. That sounds great, and I think that some aspects of the Turkish opposition have promised that, but seeing that happen, seeing that come to fruition is a lot more complicated. I feel an elephant in the room we didn't touch on in the last episode is Erdogan's response to the earthquake. Yes, this is huge. Because he was ahead in the polls, or it was much more neck and neck, and after the earthquake, he's losing by a um, wider margin. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, and there's some poll, recent polls that indicate that he might be neck and neck again, but who knows, you know, what these, what these polls really I indicate. I think Turkish polls are known to be not the most accurate. So I think the, the consensus from, like, 2019, I believe it was 2019, I really should have looked that up, but I think it's 2019, those local elections that he lost, from 2019 into uh, 2022, so 2019, 2020, 2021, as the Turkish economy fell just further and further into disaster, you know, hyperinflation. The, the... He doesn't like the interest interest rate lobby. Yes, yes. Uh, it's fallen more and more. I think the growing consensus was, wow, I think Erdogan's actually going to lose these 2023 elections. 
And then Ukraine happened. And all of a sudden, uh, this Turkish uh, Erdogan, the, who, who had burned all of his bridges, uh, in part, uh, uh, part over Syria, burned all of his bridges with uh, Europe and the United States, was this becoming this very isolated figure with a basket case economy. All of a sudden, to fight Ukraine, he's really, really essential. And all of a sudden, you've got everybody wants to talk to him again. Everybody wants to talk about concessions to him again. Everybody wants to talk about... And there's Ukrainian folk songs about um, Turkish hardware. There you, there you go. <laughs> yes, of course, the, the Bayraktar, you know, that sort of thing. He's, he's got the chokehold on the Black Sea. All of a sudden, he becomes a much more important figure. Uh, the, t the financial taps open, you know, the Gulf money... Uh, I'm sure, you know, Gulf countries make their own decisions about where they, they uh, send money. But if Blinken, call, I'm sure Blinken calling them up and being like, hey, we really wouldn't mind if you deposited like $5 billion in the, the Turkish uh, treasury. All of that worked really well for him. And I was just like, God damn it. Like, you know, this this fight against Ukraine, um, you know, and, sorry, this fight against Russia and another bit of collateral damage will be Erdogan winning another election. And then the earthquake happened. As we talked about last time, a really huge part of the case for Erdogan is the contrast with the horrific 1990s and just the failure. How Turkey was before The him. economic failure of the 1990s, the Kurdish issue failure of the 1990s. And in 1999, there was an incredibly horrific Turkish earthquake that they the the elites of the time the parties in power at the time were seen as completely botching completely mismanaging completely horrifically handling and that was i mean that was 99 and i guess they didn't lose the election until 2002 but that was a key part of the um just the chaos the the the, the nightmare of the long 1990s well erdogan now has economic crisis, uh, Kurdish issues that are looking as bad as they ever have, and this horrific earthquake. The 1999 earthquake killed 20,000 people. This earthquake is now reckoned to have killed most of 60,000 people. Uh, displaced a million people. Extraordinary. It's such a horrific tragedy. In the 1990s, the folks in power during that earthquake could at least make the case, well, no, 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 it was the other guy. It was the other guy in the coalition. It was the other guy who was in power before me. Or, you know, the military just had a coup. How can we be expected to be on top of building codes or what have you? Uh, Erdogan and the AK Party have been in unbroken control for 20 years before February 6th. So there is nobody else to blame uh, for these skyscrapers that were toppled, built during their time in power that were toppling over. But also apparently to encourage economic growth, there was a blind eye turned to a lot of the earthquake provisions that were meant to be implemented on buildings. Exactly. So a lot of things didn't get the the correct structures they should have. This is where a lot of these deaths have been, which is sort of can be directly tied to Erdogan. Exactly. Exactly. And this was this was a policy that was seen as uh it certainly was described to me as a positive one while I was living there. He would formalize title. I mean this is a very he was creating landowners. Fifty years ago Istanbul was half a million people. Now it's almost twenty million people. And a lot of this was done very quickly and very informally in the 1980s and 1990s 
in part actually because a lot of villages were being cleared out by the war between the Turkish state and the Kurds. And these folks would arrive in Istanbul, arrive in Ankara, and they call them gece kondos, uh, night kondos, because they were just erected in an evening uh, and illegally. And one of these great things that the AK Party was celebrated for doing was formalizing title to these structures, being like, oh, well, this is, it's obviously a mess, but you can own it and you can, now you can get equity out of it and you can invest in it and you can make it better. Uh, but obviously we're seeing some downsides to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there, there's no blame it on the other guy. There's no, well, the military. Or... And also when you've been in power for 20 years, it's hard to blame it on anyone yeah. else. And I, I think that that has really, and you know, it's interesting, you know, obviously, you know, it's, uh, I'm thinking Turkey has nothing to do with China, but it, it's just this, the, the, the mandate of heaven concept, you know? And I, I think that's uh, this idea that the, the supernatural forces will, Will will give and withdraw an endorsement of a certain government, and uh, yeah, this was you see this in the United States context as well. Uh, people like to talk about the financial crisis and um, the Iraq War as Bush era calamities, but Katrina is number three, if it's not number two, uh, when people will talk about them. that. That is a sort of natural disaster, sort of just highlighting how inadequate the government is. And that's, you know, just to see this, there's almost a, po a, a dark poetry to it, to see uh, this Ak Party's complete transformation into a 1990s basket case. You know, not only is the economy gone, the Kurds uh, are gone, but also the, they've got an even more horrifically mismanaged earthquake. Uh, it, does, it, does, it does sort of seem like the, the, the mandate of heaven is being withdrawn uh, from Erdogan, and uh, it just, it's, it's hard to... Hard to argue that his success is, you know, ordained by God, as is certainly heavily implied, at least uh, uh, by some in Turkish politics, if you've got this earthquake uh, three months before. And I think they had just announced moving up the Turkish elections to May 14th, and within a month or, or two months of that announcement, you've got this catastrophic, horrific uh, earthquake. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty grim. Uh, and there's also just Erdogan's personality, and this is part of his. This is part of his genius. This is part of why he's been so appealing. Why he's been able to win so many elections is that his um, his sort of strongman approach. Repeatedly read about how his uh, his usage of the Turkish language, his style of rhetoric, is just really uh, appealing to a really broad swath of the um, Turkish public, but that rhetoric, that way he approaches the world has real negative implications. Um, I think he got a lot of power in the Arab world, uh, or lead used to, and a lot of respect because he would call out Israel in ways that were um, uh, very popular uh, in just the Muslim world in general. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's one thing, but, uh, the way that he spoke, speaks about the U S government, the way that he speaks about Germany, I think he's multiple times, uh, compared, uh, Germans to Nazis and they don't, they don't, they don't really like that. Uh, no. Yeah. They're not, they're not, they're not big fans uh, of that. Well, try flying a swastika in Germany and see what happens here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And of course, the, the Turks and the Germans have really, really close relations uh, because of sort of 70 years of guest worker 
relationships. Uh, and it, it's just his, his incredible, uh, viciousness of rhetoric, uh, and intemperateness, uh, you know, that, that kind of behavior can uh, be electorally successful in a lot of countries. Look at Donald Trump. But it also has very, very real consequences. I think that the Turkish government has some really real grievances around the U.S. relationship with the PKK, with uh, with the uh, Kurds in Syria. I think those are really rational. The HDP? No, the HDP is a very different... Uh, well, the AK Party would argue that the HDP and the PKK are the same, but uh, that, would, that would not be uh, the way that uh, others would look at that. Uh, so the HDP is a Kurdish uh, party, um, but I do not believe they do not support violence. I think they inadequately condemned violence in the view of a lot of people, not just in the AK party uh, in 2015. Um, but I, th I don't, the direct connections between the HDP and the PKK are n not Was established. Was Erdogan important in their acceptance within uh, traditional politics well, in Turkey? Absolutely. Erdogan in the first decade of the century was a huge part of welcoming Kurds into the political system. And that was always in the context of both support for the AK party and greater acceptance of Kurdish specific parties. I think what happened in 2015 that turned Erdogan against the HDP specifically, and the HDP was at least the second or maybe even the third peaceful Kurdish-oriented po uh, political party just in Erdogan's time. Um, uh, so the HDP, I think, was a little more left, not, it's interesting, like not more like hard left oriented, but like more like sort of like secular, uh, socially left oriented. And the HDP got a lot of support, not just Kurds, but also sort of old secular uh, Western focused folks who were becoming very disillusioned with the AK party that they had previously supported. So the HDP, what the HDP did was it became too successful in 2015. And it got over, a, this is getting rather technical, but it leaped over a uh, percentage that allowed it to get seats in the Turkish parliament. And that ended uh, the AK Party's uh, majority. But up until 2015, yes, I do believe Erdogan was fairly welcoming to, to Kurdish parties. Um, and that was sort of part of the, 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 the sort of the opening. Uh, but anyway, so the, um, I think that Turkey has a really good case, even though, uh, well, no, like Turkey got involved in Syria, you know, helped kill this half a million people because the United States asked them to. And then the United States repaid Turkey uh, by teaming up with one of the factions that was empowered by this civil war that was fighting the Turkish military at that time in Turkey. Uh, so that's an incredible betrayal. But if you're if you express that betrayal, if you if you complain about the betrayal the way that Erdogan did, you're not going to make any friends. It, like you just can't you can't express yourself with the vehemence and brutality that Erdogan does about the United States if you expect the United States to listen to your very, very valid argument that the United States has done a very bad thing. Um, and I think that is one thing that will change very rapidly um, when I think that's sort of a more interesting aspect of the uh, Syrian conflict is not that like the Turkish position is going to change. It's just that a rational, 
friendly voice will be saying the exact same things that Erdogan has said about U.S. betrayal of the United States. And I think that the United States, if it wants this coalition government to last longer, coalition government that briefly replaced Netanyahu and Israel, uh, we're going to have to be very sympathetic. Well, because we do have uh, very conservative and also then socialist parties all trying to work together. Is it the good party is very um, conservative? So the good party is nationalist. They are like offshoots okay. of the E party. But I but I, I just want, I think it's a really interesting question like that actually, yes, like the opposition victory does make a withdrawal from Syria much more likely, but it's not a Turkish withdrawal. It's a U.S. withdrawal um, because I think the very clear good arguments that Turkey has that we have betrayed them and we should not have done that will be a lot harder to ignore from this secular opposition than it was from uh, Turkey. So I think that's a really and I think the the Kurds already see the writing on the wall in Syria. They're getting close to Assad again or trying to make deals with Assad. That's that's recent news. Um, because yeah, it's going to be a lot harder to sustain this illegal U.S. Uh, presence in Syria, troop presence of around a thousand troops. It's going to be a lot harder to sustain that when it's our NATO allies that have elected a nominally much more friendly to the U.S. government who are telling us that this troop presence is unacceptable. So. Could you tell us more about the man that uh, could be replacing Erdogan? Kamala Kılıçdaroğlu, it's interesting in part he's nearly been in politics as long as him oh i think they're the same age more or less right i think they're just about 70 uh, uh both of them and part of the reason while kamal Kilid, why kamal Kilid Starolu has stayed out of jail for the past 10 years is that he's seen as quite ineffectual he's just seen as sort of a uh you know turkey famously loves a strongman and uh, he's an academic, is my understanding. It was sort of his career before politics. And he's, you know, he, he's famous. He did a, well, was it a justice march? You know, he walked across the country, this, that, and the other thing. And I think he's been good as an opposition figure that outsiders can love. But I don't think he inspires much love or interest in Turkey. Because even in the polls, he's a bit, you know, if it's just the two men, he's pretty neck and neck with Erdogan. When the other two candidates, the mayor of um, Ankara and the mayor of Istanbul, are both well ahead in when it's just two on two. So it's sort of seen kind of why have they chosen him? When the table of six uh, announced that Kilic Starolu was going to be their candidate, the E party, which is a really important component of the table of six, the sort of nationalist element, uh, Meryl Aksener, I think over a 24-hour period, said, screw this, we're not backing him, he's the worst. Um, and then came back and was like, fine, I guess we'll back him uh, because of backdoor negotiations we don't we don't know about. Um, but yeah, those two mayors, uh, Ekrem Imamolu, and I think is the Ankara guy's name, Yavash, uh, they much more attractive candidates would definitely be much more successful. I think the thing is probably neither of them wanted it oh. because... It's so clear and it is so obvious that this government is going to have an incredibly difficult time. Uh, that I mean, there's no question. Like, I, I don't think it'll be a 1990s level catastrophe because the military is no longer there to be as nightmarish. I do think that 
there's a potential, especially with Kilic Tirolo, that there wouldn't be with Morel Akshner. Um, there is a real possibility not for a full-on Kurdish opening or negotiations with the PKK, but there is a possibility for lowering the tensions. But what could go wrong with the memorandum of understanding and common policies? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, sure. So I think this coalition is not as destined to be 1990s-style disastrous as a lot of people are assuming, but I do think it's, it's, it's indisputable that it's going to have a terrible time. And I think both Ekrem Imamolu and the Ankara guy are sort of being like, you know what, I can let this be a disaster for two years and we can hang it on Kilish Dorolu and then I can pitch myself as the savior. Um, and in, whether it's in two years time or if it's in eight years time, I think they're both fairly young, eight years time after some kind of Ak party renewal or this, that, and the other thing. So it's just, yeah, I just don't think they, they probably didn't be uh, in charge of that. And I think they're now established as vice presidents, but what does that even mean? Yes, they're like double vice presidents. Yeah, like, I, which is, I don't think really helps in the polls much because people are like, what, what the hell does that even mean? The Turkish system has dramatically shifted in so many ways over the past 20 years. You've got at the level of constitutions, at the level that, but you've also just got like, the details of what does it mean when you've got a figure like Erdogan sort of calling the shots. Like, it's entirely possible that Kilic Darolu becomes the president and then either in a formal way or in an informal way, whoever is established as the prime minister ends up being a more powerful figure, even though constitutionally it's supposed to be the president. He's like, it, a lot of things are really, really up in the air. My understanding is that I think on the same day, We've got presidential elections, but then also parliamentary elections, which will determine, you know, who the who the prime minister is going to be. Just by nature of the characters and political mandates of Erdogan versus Kilic Darolu, the parliament is going to be more powerful than it has been, um, even uh, even even though the system has changed. The question is going to be how much. More Why has Erdogan been so reluctant to um, increase interest rates? That gets into aspects that I don't fully understand, and I don't think anybody really fully understands. Because the basics is seem to be if you you know increase that, it'll reduce inflation. <laughs> and he's sort of given a textbook example of why you should increase interest rates. Yeah, because it's it's gone fairly. It was you know fairly maybe high for Western countries, but it was fairly flat at around maybe five to twenty percent. <laughs> and in since October in twenty twenty one. It shot up past 80%. Yeah. It's just outstanding. He has finally brought uh, Turkish inflation measures back up to the level of the 1990s. I mean, famously, one of the early reforms he did uh, was a currency reform to take six zeros off of the Turkish uh, currency. Uh, still, when I when I handed people like one lira for, for well, I can't hand, hand people one lira for anything in Turkey anymore, but you could when I was living there from 2011, 2016, and they'd say, oh, one million, you know, and it's like, oh, he won, because that's that's what it was. And yeah, he's it's amazing. You know, I, I did a sort of somewhat scurrilous short saying that uh, Erdogan is just Tansu Chiler right now. Uh, uh, there's Tansu Chiler, uh, Turkey's first female prime minister, who unfortunately uh, ended up in. Uh, I think she had her own very serious faults, but also was just dealing with the horrific situation of Turkey in the 1990s and was remembered very poorly. And but you know. Erdogan's current uh, legacy is basically just Tansu Chile level. 
Um, I am less like, I don't, I just don't know about interest rate stuff. Like, I just don't fully understand it. I don't quite get it. Um, and I am generally a little more leery of economic orthodoxy than most other folks are. Mm -hmm. But I think it's pretty clear that his interest rate policy has been a disaster. Um, and I think that's rooted in, to some degree, I think that's rooted in um, religious practice, not just, you know, Islamic, but Christian is also just sort of against usury or what have you. Um, so uh, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what's going on. So they on need there. a few Lutherans to bring back control of the banks. That's right. It's some good, good Protestants who don't care about, uh, <laughs> famously don't care about the Bible. Um, the, uh, that's sarcasm kind of. Yeah. The finance stuff is, we, I, what is incontrovertible is that the financial management of Turkey looked incredibly good in the 2000s and has looked incredibly bad in the 2010s and the 2010s, especially in the past five years. Uh, and it's, it's, it's right back. I mean, it's not right back. Like it was, it was a middle to low income country in the 1990s and now it is a middle to upper income country. And that has not been completely lost, but he has pissed away a lot more of, uh, that economic momentum than anybody thought was possible. Can you see him giving up power easily? Well, no. I mean, we've seen over and over again just how in 2015, when he lost that parliamentary election, in 2019, when he lost the uh, local elections and doing sort of everything in his power to uh, rerun the elections or, or um, make changes that make the, the, the elections less relevant or what have you, I, I think there's a consensus though that it would be a lot more difficult and he would have to take much more firmly anti-democratic actions than he has had to this point and that's a really open question like i i don't call erdogan a dictator i don't call him a sultan or what have you because i do believe he has won a lot of elections that have put him there if he were to lose this election by 10 percent and then stay in power, then dictator is the only word that can be applied to him. Um, and I think that uh, that's it's not it's not just a question of can he get away with it. It's also a question of will he and the people around him be willing to do the things that would be necessary to keep him in power? Would they be willing to? discard all vestiges of democracy? Would they be willing to truly kill the democratic system that in part he created? Um, and that's, that's a really open question. That's, that's a, that is a, we will find out about, uh, over the next couple of weeks, quite possibly, or maybe he'll just pull it out and, uh, uh, you know, when, win this election outright on May 14th, but I don't think that's anybody's expectation. If he's voted out, what do you see him doing? Will he retire or, you know, because he still has a large control over media and a hell of a lot of Turkish life. So there's a distinction between what Erdogan and his family are going to be able to do and what the, you know, hundreds or thousands of people who have been around him and profited off of him uh, will be able to do. I've heard sort of scuttlebutt, you know, friend of friend of friend of friend that some of those people are already preemptively fleeing the country. Uh, Erdogan and his family, I believe, are largely untouchable and should remain uh, untouchable. This uh, coalition government is going to have enough difficulties 
without trying to prosecute Erdogan. And I think that, honestly, I, I think it had probably, he's not a healthy man. I think that even he and even his children. 69, I think. He's he's, he's young, but he's, I mean, over the past couple weeks, uh, this is incredibly important uh, time. He's He's been unable to campaign on certain days because his health is. And there is... was a television debate that was he was late for because he um, had a coughing fit or something, he said. Uh, so he's, I mean, his health is not so great. Um, but he, you know, he. It's also terrible timing for him. Yeah. I think it's entirely possible that he'll do some kind of deal with the opposition. Just sort of, uh, that's a possibility, you know, just sort of like leave me and my kids alone and, you know, my irritating son-in-laws as well, and I'll let this happen or, or something like that. You know, promise you won't come after my billions or my private islands. And I think that's a deal that the coalition should absolutely make. Well, it also seems the best for, you know, Turkish peace in the future. Turkish peace, stability. Uh, and you know what? He's, you know, he's, he's, his legacy, especially if he does step back. I think his legacy is like Turkey's Turkey is greatest Democrat is frankly pretty established. You know, um, you know George Washington didn't take multi-billion-dollar bribes to step away from power. And I'm sure Erdogan knows how to make a deal. Yes, I think I think he does. <laughs> Obviously, even if he doesn't make a deal, I think that the coalition will have bigger fish to fry. Some of those bigger fish he will be fr they will be frying, however will be the, a broad range of Erdogan-affiliated business people who, you know, the, the, it's entirely possible that if Erdogan were prosecuted, you could see, like, as we saw during the 2016 Turkish coup, uh, people coming to the streets and, like, open civil war uh, in Turkey. We could see that. Um, I don't think anybody's going to go to go to war for, like, you know, uh, Joe... We won't have a full Pakistan situation. Joe Real Estate from, uh, from, from Anatolia, you know? I, I, don't, I don't think they're going to they're gonna really particularly care. He's no Imran Khan? Oh, well, no, I, I think he might be some, oh. you know, Imran Khan. Like, I mean, I, I think that he has incredible support still from at least a quarter of the Turkish public. So, yeah, like, going after him is a really bad idea. But I, what I'm trying to say is I don't think that that quarter of the Turkish public would particularly care if they went after like henchman number five uh, or no, henchman number five through henchman number a thousand. And what's interesting is a lot of elements of the AK party uh, from that, that era when things were going well from the 2000s have long, long since abandoned Erdogan. In the table of six, you have two parties that are led by famous AK party figures of the 2000s, Ali Babajan and uh, Davutul. But uh, two of these parties are led by uh, folks who used to be, when the AK party was a serious party, you know, serious elements of that party. So we're really, Erdogan has famously been down to the dregs. Uh, in terms of the people who are supporting him. And we've just got a lot of really outright corrupt uh, business folks who are nobody's really going to care about. And Erdogan would be happy to throw under a bus. Yes. Yeah. One thing we've definitely learned is that he does not have a particularly high degree of loyalty to his supporters. I think obviously there's going to have to be some kind of deal between the opposition and Erdogan and his family. And I think that would be the right deal to make um, for the stability of Turkey. Uh, but again, it's entirely possible that he'll just win. He'll win outright on, on Sunday. We don't know. And it's entirely possible that he will win outright through theft. You know, that the, there's definitely a 
you know, is it, it was, it was one to 2%, you know, in 2015, maybe they can get away with falsifying 5% this time, you know? So I, I don't know. I just don't know. We shall see. If he's voted out, could you see him running again whenever the next election is? Well, it's sort of the, the Netanyahu yeah. possibility. And I, I think the, I think that's a really important, really uh, vital example for the Biden administration, because I think it was it just a year ago. I don't the timeline on this uh, escapes me. But Netanyahu, after like the eighth election in three months or something like that, was finally kicked out of power by this incredibly tenuous coalition that was able to hold on for 10 months. Because there was talk of Netanyahu even going to jail because other Israeli prime ministers have been in jail for their crimes. And here he is back in charge yeah. again. Yep, yep. And I think that's a very real uh, possibility uh, in Turkey. And I think that's why it's really important for the United States to just do everything they possibly can to make this coalition mm -hmm. a success. And the United States and Europe, Europe as well, have incredible levers that they can pull to do that. I'm afraid that the the temptation will be like, yeah, we'll give you some stuff. Now give us some stuff, you know, give us the S3400, give us, you know, withdraw from Syria. Then maybe we can talk about this, 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 this. And no, like immediately, Europe and the United States have to be really generous. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I was reading about that. Europe made a formal commitment to Turkey uh, related to the refugee issues to grant visa-free travel to Turks, to Europe. Um, and then they backed out of that because, a fair, more or less fairly, uh, because Erdogan was being too authoritarian and that was their justification. Well, okay, you've got this coalition government. I think on day two... They should grant visa-free travel to Turks. Um, I think that, that that would be the kind of... We should be throwing carrots at these guys. We should make them look very successful very quickly, no matter how little they give us. Yeah, how little they give us in terms of like our traditional concerns uh, with, with Turkey. Um, because it's in t an AK, AK Party restoration is very possible. But uh, Erdogan has created this um, uh, this polycrisis that is incredibly difficult, and it's part of his strategy is like I'm going to create this this incredible juggling act of plates and breakable stuff and spiked baseball bats in the air that only I am capable of keeping in the air, and a lot of it will come crashing down. Uh, pretty immediately. Um, and uh, the U.S. and Europe really need to be there for Turkey uh, if we want to keep the AK party out of power. How has uh, Greece fared with this election? Have they been mentioned much? Or considering all the things we've mentioned, they're way down the list? I just take, I take the competition between Greece and Turkey. I find it so unserious. I just don't, like, it. it's, it's kind of like the competition between India and Pakistan. It's like, they were, you know, this was an incredibly important dynamic in the founding decades of, of both countries. And it's just like, it's not a competition anymore. Like India just won. Um, Turkey just won. Uh, and I think it's, it's beneath, frankly, I think it's beneath Turkish politicians uh, continue to act like this is a real rivalry. It's like, it's like the U.S. being obsessed with Canada. It's, it's like a vestigial 
joke. I, I just don't take it seriously. Unfortunately, I think both Erdogan's party and the new party will be taking it seriously because it, it's just, it's, it's as all Indian politicians take competition from Pakistan very seriously because it's just fundamental to the political makeup. Um, will we see real movement on Cyprus? No. Um, will we see probably marginally less? Well, I think what you might actually see is some real negotiation between the less offensive Turkish government and Greece and Israel and Egypt over the gas. Because I think that even now it's looking less likely. Um, you know, there's this idea we're going to do this East Med pipeline and we're going to supply all this gas to Europe. And that certainly looks a lot more viable than it did uh, uh, when uh, Europe had Russia to uh, rely on. But still, even now, even after all that, like Turkey's still the most obvious market for this gas. And the only reason that they were being cut out of it is because Erdogan was such a dumbass. Expecting quick action on the part of the Turkish government, you know, like, oh, we're going to be friends over Cyprus, you know, and we're going to, you know, go hug the Greek prime minister. No, you should not expect that. But I do think some kind of more positive deal between Turkey and Israel, Egypt, uh, Cyprus, uh, Lebanon over these gas resources is very likely with a more civil uh, Turkish government. And if that happens, then I think a lot of the current uh, impetus between Turkish Greece, Greek uh, problems might not go away entirely, but the, the pressure will be lessened. Um, and we can move forward towards, um, you know, Turkey and Greece. As, you know, again, we were kind of getting to in the early, in the first decade of Erdogan, of uh, the sort of the old tensions disappearing. But, yeah, that's one of the worst things uh, about uh, late-stage Erdogan, really just since 2015, is that he's needed the nationalists to stay in power. So that's meant he's had to just turn into... Completely flip on early Erdogan. Yeah, sort of he has to turn into sort of like a, a mid-20th century dumbass when it turns to, when it comes to his tree, uh, treatment of the Greek-Turkish uh, relationship. So what odds are you going to give Erdogan losing? Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to be boring and I'm just going to go 50-50. You know, it, it, I really just don't, really just don't know. Or maybe 60-40 towards Erdogan winning. Well, they, um, there's two separate questions there, right? Like maybe I'm 50-50 on him winning the election and then I'm like 60-40 on him still being power in power next year, you know? Or alive at this at this rate with his health. So I like, I have this sort of theory, uh, which actually makes me feel a little bit better about the Biden uh, nomination. I do not feel good about the Biden nomination, to be clear. I desperately like anybody else. The thing about being an old person and an ill person is that purpose keeps you going you know that's that and the we see over and over and over again like very very few people die in power uh you know you can even lots of examples uh like mahatir in malaysia a guy who was you know found himself in government again in his 90s conrad adenauer in germany was like you know started governing the place in his like 60s and then was in power for another 30 years or something like that after World War II. Like, old sick people in power, if they remain in power, uh, can be preserved by that. So since I moved to Turkey, or my first visit to Turkey in 2009, 
people were talking about Erdogan's health. Uh, not always, but certainly for 15 years, uh, there's been questions about Erdogan's health and very confident rumors that, oh, he's gonna, he's done. You know, actually Ataturk did, did die in power, but he died in power because he, he'd kind of accomplished everything. You know, he was- He'd lost his drive. He was too successful. Yeah. He'd saved his country. He'd battled off uh, the, the, the British and then he'd battled off the Greeks and he'd established, you know, he massively changed and all that was required of him was to just sort of go to parties. And, uh, he, he did not survive that. So it's the parties. Yes. Erdogan needs to steer clear of parties. It's the parties. But I think Erdogan, uh, and you know, Biden, uh, Trump, you know, are still, you know, instilled with this deep sense of purpose and, uh, and that'll keep, that'll keep a person alive. You know, that'll keep a person alive. So I, 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 one theory that I have heard is that, yeah, if he does find himself out of power, he'll quickly decline and die. Um, but that, I mean, that's a possibility. Or it could give him more drive to get back in power. Also, uh, maybe he, maybe he finally gets to sleep, um, you know, for a month or two and comes back, uh, rejuvenated, rejuvenated. Who knows? Okay. Um, cause it's been, a, it, what would you, it's just. Reading about his, uh, I've been I've been reading like three books on Erdogan over the past month or so, and it's just especially since 2011 when he started falling out with the Gulenists. Like, I can't think of a person on this planet I would less like to be than Erdogan because he's just he's just gone to sleep every night like wondering like uh, who's you know who's going to turn on me tomorrow or like. Are there? I think it's an entirely rational concern on his part. Like, are there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, are there assassins coming for me right now? Uh, in 2016, there was a gang of, uh, you know, a hit squad that was coming for him, and I think missed him by 10 minutes or something. Now, this is during the coup, um, so I can't think of a less pleasant. You know, in part, actually, that's that's the. If you want to know why he made this horrific decision to kill half a million Syrians and drag his country into this war, I think that's probably the falling out with the Gulenists. That you can look at it that way. It's just like he needed something that was going to give him leverage with the United States um, and with Europe and both. The, and it, it's something we forget is that, uh, despite all our complaints uh, in you know more recent years, uh, the U.S. and Europe were all on board with Turkey's early actions to destabilize Assad, um, contributing to them heavily. Yeah, but I think I think that's the connection. He started realizing he was losing the Gulenists, and he needed. Uh, and the Gulenists do have, as we can, as we all know, Fatullah Gulen is living in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, he has the Gulenists have deep connections to the United States, and to sort of navigate around that, uh, Erdogan uh, got. You know, did exactly what the Obama administration wanted in Syria, um, to incredible cost, or to millions of people. Well, I think we've covered all his uh, negative aspects in this episode. Oh, there are so many more negative aspects uh, to Erdogan. You know, everybody in power <laughs> is a sociopath, uh, without without question. Uh, but but yeah, he's a really really successful sociopath. Talking to Turkish people, other folks, like people just don't have faith that Turkey, even people who really oppose Erdogan, seem to lack faith that Turkey will be able to cope without him, move forward without him. 
You know, they, they, they do. And I think there is a good case to be made that all of these spinning plates are just going to fall down and it's going to be disastrous. But like, I think that in part because of Erdogan's contributions towards sort of like solving the democracy problem, getting the military out, sort of defusing the, the Islamist time bomb, I really do think that Turkey can vote this guy out this Sunday and no question it'll be a very chaotic six months, two years or so, but then move forward as a much stronger, much uh, more impressive uh, country. I, th I think that that is... So Erdogan may have planted fertile soil for democracy? Yeah. Well, and, and also, like, if, if we're at this point, and I think there are probably, there are definitely Turkish business people who are making this calculation, you're like, I hate Erdogan and everything he stands for, but, like, I'm so scared by what could come after that I'm just going to vote for him again. But think about like just how exponentially worse Erdogan's governance has gotten like almost every year. So, okay, fine. So, you know, you just want to keep those plates spinning uh, for another uh, uh, two or three years. But he's been dropping a few plates. So let's vote. Yeah. And he's just going to add plates until he <laughs> dies, you know? Well, well that, that, that would be much worse because there's such a, a power vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's it, the responsible thing is to uh, get rid get of him. Get some sweetheart deals and enjoy retirement. Yeah. The, the, the sensible thing is to get rid of him now because it's not going to be better four or five years from now. And while his, his health uh, things can be overstated, he's not going to be alive 20 years from now. Um, you know, we can't we can't let him have another uh, another decade um, to to just make things exponentially worse and worse. So we'll catch you next time on the More Freedom Foundation podcast. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is Rob Law, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire what it was and how the US can do better. And music provided by Kevin MacLeod.